Hello everyone and welcome to the February 18th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm David Jimenez with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. A WCAB panel warned applicant attorneys about inflating their attorney fee requests. Here's what happened in the case of Felix Nino Moda versus Al Green Landscape and National Insurance Company. After litigating and appealing the case in chief, the Court of Appeal denied the defendant's petition for writ of review. There was no reasonable basis for the petition. This finding means that applicant's attorney will get an attorney fee from the defendants pursuant to Labor Code Section 5801. The court remanded the case to the WCAB to make the award of attorney fees based upon services rendered while responding to the appeal. Applicant attorneys submitted three unitemized declarations claiming an attorney's fee of nearly $52,000 for hourly services at over $500 per hour. The WCAB indicated that the documentation was inadequate since there were no itemized billings. Also, the fee claim was for a total of 100 hours of attorney time with no indication of why so many hours were required. And some of the claim was for $500 per hour for time spent performing clerical tasks. The WCAB said that they ordinarily determine a fee based on an independent review of the record. Without other information, the WCAB would have awarded a fee award in the range of $14,000 to $16,000. But state and federal case law provides that where the original request for a fee is unreasonably inflated, a court may award less than what would otherwise be a reasonable fee or even allow no fee at all. Therefore, the WCAB went on to determine what fee between zero and $16,000 should be awarded. They allowed applicant attorneys to file properly itemized declarations, but would not allow applicants' attorneys a second bite of the apple at justifying the original $52,000 inadequate and defective fee request. Applicants' attorneys responded with three supplemental declarations. The WCAB concluded that the new fee declarations were not credible and inaccurate and inadequate after the fact attempt to justify the original unitemized fee request. The WCAB observed that all three declarations claimed legal services that were rendered before the defendant's appeal was even mailed. The WCAB decided to allow a fee of only $200,000 of only $2,500. Uh, their decision on fees was expressly intended to deter applicant attorneys from making future unreasonably inflated fee requests that are not supported by adequate and accurate time itemizations. They said that the intent is to deter applicant attorneys not only from making unreasonably inflated fee section 5801 requests, but also any other type of reasonable attorney fee request, including but not limited to deposition on attorney fees, fees for compensation, unreasonably delayed subsequent to the issuance of the award, and even fees claimed as a lien against ordinary benefits. Moreover, we caution applicants' attorneys that if they do make such improper fee requests in the future, not only do they risk being allowed a zero attorney fee, but they also risk sanctions under Section 5813 and WCAB Rule 10561. The WCAB suspended lien representative Daniel Escamilla from appearing at the board. In 2011, the appeals board initiated an action against hearing representative Daniel Escamilla, citing 11 cases in which Mr. Escamilla was sanctioned for misconduct. These sanctions demonstrated a pattern of behavior with no attempt to reform. 
Several of the cases awarded sanctions for verifying and filing a frivolous petition for reconsideration. Workers' Compensation Administrative Law Judge David Hedick was appointed as the hearing officer to conduct pre-hearing conferences and to take testimony. There were five pre-hearing conferences and an evidentiary hearing at which Mr. Escamilla testified, documentary evidence was introduced, and, witnesses, and witness declarations were submitted. A second hearing took place before the commissioners of the WCAB sitting in bank. The authority for non-attorney representative to appear in workers' compensation proceedings is conferred by Section 5700 and 5501 of the Labor Code. The rationale for allowing lay representation was to afford representation for indigent claimants with small claims who would not otherwise be represented. However, the use of lay representatives could result in inexperienced and inexpert advice and assistance to deserving claimants. The Appeals Board is vested with the power under Section Labor Code 4907 to remove, deny, or suspend the privilege of a non-attorney hearing representative after a hearing for good cause. Section 4907 as an important bulwark for protection of the public and the WCAB adjudicatory system. Good cause essentially means a fair and honest cause or reason regulated by good faith on the part of the party exercising the power. Good cause means real circumstances, substantial reasons, objective conditions, palpable forces that operate to produce correlative results, adequate excuses that will bear the test of reason, just grounds for action, and always the element of good faith. The WCAB concluded that Mr. Escamilla has repeatedly violated regulations, misrepresented facts either intentionally or with reckless disregard for the truth, filed frivolous petitions, and engaged in other sanctionable conduct. He has been warned about and sanctioned for his behavior repeatedly. The WCAB concluded that his conduct has wasted valuable court time, delayed proceedings, burdened the appeals board with frivolous petitions, inconvenienced other parties, and exposed his clients to monetary sanctions. Yet he persists in engaging in a pattern of conduct which evidences no intent to reform. The WCAB ordered that Mr. Escamilla be suspended from appearing before the Workers' Compensation Appeals Board as a hearing representative on behalf of any party or lien claimant for a period of 90 days. This suspension will commence 45 days after the date of the filing of this order. And now our fraud report. The Ventura County District Attorney announced the filing of a felony complaint against 28-year-old Carrie Atwood and 36-year-old Michael Atwood of Santa Paula. Both defendants are charged with committing workers' compensation fraud and conspiracy. Carrie Atwood is also charged with grand theft and burglary. Carrie Atwood was a civilian employee of the Ventura County Sheriff's Office. She reported an industrial injury to her left ankle. Carrie Atwood said that the injury occurred when another employee accidentally hit the back of her foot with a mail cart. She was placed on temporary total disability and received over $29,000 in disability pay. Carrie Atwood used crutches or a wheelchair to get to her medical appointments, but after her medical appointments, she was seen walking freely without the aid of crutches or a wheelchair. She was also observed in engaging in a number of physical activities that she told her treating physician she could not perform. Michael Atwood drove Carrie Atwood to her doctor's visits and failed to disclose her true physical condition. The defendants were arrested by investigators from the California Department of Insurance. Carrie Atwood faces a maximum sentence of nine years and eight months in county jail 
and Michael Atwood faces a sentence of four years and, f and four months in county jail. Federal officials say that they recovered a record-breaking $4.2 billion as a result of joint efforts to address health care fraud in 2012. Health and Human Services Secretary Kathleen Sebelius and Attorney General Eric Holder issued a report which showed that for every dollar the U.S. government spent on health care related fraud and abuse investigations, it got almost $8 back. This is a record since the health care fraud and abuse program began 16 years ago. The money was recovered from companies and individuals who had tried to defraud federal health programs aimed at seniors and taxpayers. Over $23 billion have been returned to the Medicare Trust Fund since 1997. The Healthcare Fraud Prevention and Enforcement Action Team, also known as HEAT, was created in 2009. A takedown involving the highest number of suspects in the history of the Strike Force program occurred in 2012. It involved 107 people, including nurses and doctors in seven cities. They were charged with fraud schemes totaling approximately $452 billion. During that takedown, HHS also suspended or took other action against 52 providers to suspend payments until the investigation was completed. Last year, 251 guilty pleas and 13 jury trials were brought to court. 29 defendants had guilty verdicts against them in strike force cases. Those found guilty were given prison sentences averaging over 48 months. And in medical news, a new medical study reviewed reasons for high hip replacement costs. Over 300,000 Americans have a hip replaced each year. The surgery is especially common among the elderly who are covered by Medicare. Still, about half of all hip replacements in the U.S. are done on people younger than 65, some of whom may not have private insurance. For the new study, researchers called 122 hospitals, two per state, plus the top 20 orthopedic hospitals listed in the, in the U.S. News and World Report rankings. The study from the University of Iowa was reported in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Internal Medicine. During each call, they pretended to have a 62-year-old grandmother who needed a hip replacement but didn't have insurance and asked for the total price of the procedure. Many hospitals were hard-pressed to tell people needing a hip replacement how much the procedure is likely to cost. Even when they can cite prices, going rates for the procedure may vary from hospital to hospital by a factor of 10. Researchers say they were transferred to many different people trying to get pricing information and had to leave messages and wait for a call back. Just 45% of the top 20 hospitals and 10% of other hospitals could provide a complete cost for the hospital and doctor fees for a hip replacement after up to five phone calls. The team was able to put together the prices of procedures at 60% of top hospitals and 63% of others. Totals ranged anywhere from about $11,000 to about $125,000. Some hospitals gave reasons for higher prices such as assigning her grandmother to a private room but for others it wasn't clear what went into the cost of the care and the cost of an actual hip prosthesis can vary four or fivefold across the country officials from the transparency group clear health costs said a tenfold difference in price for any given test or procedure isn't unusual even within a single geographic area and in regulatory news the Division of Workers' Compensation has issued notices 
of public hearings for the electronic document filing and lien filing fee rules. The proposed rulemakings are to permanently adopt the emergency regulations which became effective January 1st. A public hearing on the proposed regulations has been scheduled at 10 a.m. March 26 in the auditorium of the Elihu Harris Building, 1515 Clay Street in Oakland. Members of the public may also submit written comment on the regulations until 5 p.m. that day. Senate Bill 863 has created substantial changes to how liens are filed within the workers' compensation system. Specifically, any liens filed pursuant to Labor Code Section 4903B or claims of costs must be filed electronically. Also, a fee of $150 is now required prior to filing for most liens filed after January 1, 2013. And a $100 activation fee is required for most liens filed before then but activated for a lien conference after January 1st. This activation fee is required to be paid at the time a lien claimant files a declaration of readiness or appears at a lien conference. This rulemaking implements these changes. There are some proposed revisions to the emergency regulations. Specifically, the cost, the definitions of cost, lien conference, mandatory settlement conference, and party have been amended for clarity. The EMZ form filing reference guide has been revised to reflect that lien claimants will now be given uniform assigned names to use when filing electronically. The DWC will consider all public comments and may modify the proposed regulations for consideration during an additional 15-day public comment period. The notices of rulemaking, text of the regulations, and the initial statements of reasons can be found on the DWC rulemaking page. The Division of Workers' Compensation is posted, is posted an updated fact sheet for injured workers which provides answers to questions about permanent disability indemnity. The Division is providing a grace period until March 18th to use the revised fact sheet as required for issuance of benefit notices. Only the text of the fact sheet is required for compliance. Specific changes to the fact sheet include information which is provided to confirm the claims administrator for an employer. The potential modification of the PD rating by a whole person impairment factor of 1.4%. There is an explanation for the basis for delaying the payment to permanent disability, and information is provided about the Department of Industrial Relations Special Earnings Loss Supplemental Program for workers who feel that they are not adequately compensated for their earnings loss. The DWC has also received questions about the effect of SB 863 on the current benefit notice requirements, particularly as to the requirement to pay permanent disability before an award is issued. The division is in the process of significantly redrafting the benefit notice regulations to incorporate the changes required by SB 863 and streamline the current notice requirements. The current notice requirements remain in effect until the updated regulations are adopted. The benefit notice regulations prescribe the required content of each notice. The sample benefit notices set forth in the benefit notice manual contained suggested language for complying with the benefit notice regulations. Unless specific notice language is required by a labor code section or a DWC regulation, a claims administrator can rephrase the notice language in the model notices so long as the content required by the regulations is accurately given. The Division of Workers' Compensation will hold the next Qualified Medical Evaluator exam on October 9th. The exam will include changes made to the QME program as a result of Senate Bill 863. The QME study guide 
will also be updated and be available 30 days prior to the exam. The DWC Executive Medical Director, Dr. Rupali Das, said that SB 863 introduced a number of changes that will affect the role of qualified medical evaluators. The DWC wants to make sure that the next exam and the study materials reflect these changes so that new QMEs are well prepared to efficiently provide needed care and services for injured workers. The applicants may contact the DWC medical unit to receive the link to the application packet, which will be available in July. Well, that's all for our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using our iPhone, your iPhone, iPad or iPad by searching for Workers' Comp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm David Jimenez, a partner with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today and drop by again next week for more news. And stay classy, Los Angeles.